One of the things I love to do when I go to the mall is not to shop. It is to go to the ice cream places there, especially the ice cream places that give you free samples of the different flavors so you can try uh, the flavors before you buy it. When I go to places like that, I will try close to 10 to 15 flavors. Of course, I want to sample them all uh, to make sure uh, that the one I choose is the one that I like. You know, I think to myself, uh, these places who run these ice cream parlors that give you free samples, they must not be very smart. They must not be very business savvy because I'm sure they would lose money on people like me. There are times that I sample all the flavors and I uh, am not ashamed to tell them, you know what, I don't think I'm going to get a scoop today. The reality is I'm just so full from the samples that I don't want to get a scoop. I had an opportunity to talk uh, to one of the owners of these places that give out free samples. And I asked them, sir, why do you allow for free samples? He told me, yes, there are people like you who can take advantage of this free sample system. And yes, we do lose money on people like you. Uh, But the vast majority of the people are not like you. They don't do that. In fact, we actually make money when we give away free samples. You see, when we give free samples out, customers who walk into the store thinking they're just going to get one scoop of ice cream will end up getting three or four scoops of ice cream because they can't decide on the flavor that they want. And so they get the scoops of the ones that they like. I think that speaks to human nature. When we have tasted something that we like, we want more of it. And that's why movies have trailers and previews, and now even TV shows do as well, to entice you to watch their show by giving you a glimpse of something that you will like, something you will expect to see so that you will watch it. So it is when it comes to the Word of God. God gives us glimpses of the future in His prophetic Word to encourage us not only to persevere, in living out the present condition of our lives, but to look forward, to anticipate the amazing future that awaits us. And my friends, we need that for sure, especially in this day and age, especially in this stress-filled, unfair world in which we live. We really need to see the glimpses of glory. We need to see pictures. We need to be reminded of how the world will be like in the end. And that's exactly what the prophet Zephaniah wanted to show the people of Israel of his time. And by virtue of this being the word of God, it has application for us today. This morning, I would like to invite you to taste with me to to see glimpses of glory for specifically. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah chapter 3 as we exposit verses 9 to 13. The book of Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 9 to 13, as we continue our sermon series entitled, The Day of the Lord, How Knowing About the Future Teaches Us How to Live in the Present. Now, as you know from this series, the Day of the Lord is about God's universal judgment upon a wicked world. And although this is the primary emphasis of the Day of the Lord in the Scripture, it is not all. In fact, the great day of the Lord is also about the outpouring of God's great blessings upon those who have turned to Him. In these five verses, from verses 9 to 13 of chapter 3, we turn from God announcing judgment 
to God announcing blessing for all mankind. And from these verses of blessings, we draw out four glimpses of glory. And so we begin in verses 9 and 10 of Zephaniah chapter 3. Verse 9 reads, For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The first glimpse of glory that God gives to encourage the people through the prophet Zephaniah, number one, if you're taking notes, is to give them a glimpse of his complete restoration. The first glimpse of glory, God's complete restoration. If you're unfamiliar with the terminology, restoration is bringing back something to a condition of how it was like when it was new. That is the process of restoration. In some cases, the process of restoration brings that item or brings that event to a better condition. And so here in verses 9 and 10, God promises that in the future, He will restore the world back to a condition of how it should have been at the very beginning before Adam and Eve fell in sin. In fact, the language in verse 9 speaks of this. The restoration of a pure language has the idea of the renewal of once defiled lips. It means that one day in the future, the nations and the people who previously blaspheme the name of the Lord God by worshiping the false gods will now worship the one true God. They will call upon the name of the Lord. And that is evidence, verse 9 says, by their desire to serve the Lord. In fact, in verse 10, we are told that in the future, the Jewish people from the farthest reaches of this world will come to Jerusalem and bring praise and worship to the one they rejected as a nation. He whom they have despised and rejected, now they will acknowledge as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings, and they will come and worship him. Now, as you see this glimpse of glory of God's complete restoration at the end, we ask ourselves the question, how then this is applied to our lives? Knowing that God will completely restore what man has broken, we remember that we are a part of this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we will be able to experience the greatness of the restored new heaven and new earth as described in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. You see, the God we worship is always about restoration. He has been redeeming this world since we have sinned. He has been on a singular mission to restore the world, to restore mankind to his perfect plan. You see, God does not make mistakes. It is we who have messed it up. And here is the promise. He will succeed. This is the glimpse of glory. God's complete restoration will happen. In fact, it is happening today. It is happening in your lives. You see, a lot of people think that when they come to church, they're just here to be rebuked. They're just here to be condemned. But I want you to change your perspective about coming to church. When you come to church... It's about being restored. It is about being 
called to recognize what is wrong with your life, enabled by Jesus Christ to then begin the process of restoration. Why? So that we can prepare ourselves for that day when we get our glorified bodies and we will live in the restored kingdom. So we are working in preparation for that time. The church is about a reminder to carry on a light purpose of being restored to Christ-likeness. I came across a story told by Jim Corley in his interaction with his friend Alex. Alex worked at a car dealership, and Jim had been trying to invite Alex back to church. When Jim visited Alex at his car dealership, where he worked, uh, Alex replied to Jim. He said, Jim, I feel like a hypocrite every time I go to church because I fail to live for Christ so often. Jim replied, Alex, what do you call this part of the dealership? Jim looked at the area outside his cubicle and he said, this is the showroom. This is where we bring out all the new cars so that we can try to sell it to the people. Yes, I know, this is the showroom. What's, but what's behind the showroom, Jim asked Alex, past the parts counter. Alex said confidently, Jim, that's the service department. That's where we, we, we repair the cars that are broken. And what Jim asked, what have I told you, Alex? I didn't want to bring my car to the service department because there was something wrong with it. Alex replied, Jim, that would be crazy. That's the whole point of the service department, to fix cars that are not running right. Jim said, exactly. You're absolutely right. Now let's get back to our initial conversation. Instead of thinking of the church as a showroom where image is everything, start thinking of the church as God's service department, helping people to get back into running order with God. And that is what the church is all about. The church is the service department of God to restore you and to restore me into a right relationship with God in preparation for when God will completely restore this world back to its Edenic condition, a perfect condition. You know, sometimes I look at this world with all of its corrupt people and sinful ways, and I get frustrated to see how everyone seems to get away with everything. How this world seems to reward those who sin and steal. How those who do not call upon the name of the Lord, they are praised and they are blessed. And while we who call upon the name of the Lord and stand boldly for Him, we are the ones who are ridiculed. And if there was no hope for a complete restoration, then I will say, and I have said sometimes in my frustration, is this it? Is there something better? Is this life? And how wonderful it is that God, throughout the scriptures and here in Zephaniah, gives us a glimpse of glory. That one day God will restore it completely to the right condition. When the worship of the one true God is what is right and what is honored. And where serving Him is of the highest honor. And so that is our encouragement. We get a glimpse of God's complete restoration. And so with excitement, we begin the restoration process in our lives to be more Christ-like in anticipation and preparation for that day. The second glimpse of glory is in verse 11. Look with me. 
In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I want you to underline that phrase in verse 11. You shall not be shamed for any of your deeds. The second glimpse of glory that Zephaniah gave the people of Israel and gives us today is that the guilty are no longer ashamed. Number two, the guilty are no longer ashamed of. He tells the reader, Zephaniah does, that they will no longer feel ashamed for their previous rebellion, their previous disobediences. Why? Verse 11. Because those who are wicked and those who are evil and those who are unrepentant, they will have been judged and they will have been taken away. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. The unrepentant are gone. And the only people who are left are those who acknowledge the Lord. Now, why would there be no shame? And why is that a glimpse of glory to serve as an encouragement to us? I like what Tom Constable says. He says, a feeling of shame comes from an awareness of guilt. A feeling of shame comes from an awareness of guilt. And there will be no more guilt because God said he will remove pride from their hearts. Verse 11. And if there is no pride, there is no guilt. And if there is no guilt, there is no shame. And this is a message that should resonate in our Asian culture, especially our Chinese culture. Because our culture is a shame-based culture. Shame is something that Satan uses to get us to think that somehow if we've messed up once, that we are no longer eligible to serve God. Or that if we have lived a life of despair, or we lived a life of rebellion, then God cannot save someone as bad as me. Shame is a tool used by Satan to reject and to disqualify in our minds the work of God. I'm sure you know many people, I know countless people, who have left the church because they feel ashamed of something they did, something they did wrong. And it wasn't because the church told them to leave. It was simply because they felt ashamed. Dr. Les Parrott says of shame, shame is a spin-off from guilt. We may feel guilty for what we did, but we feel shame of who we are. Guilt is on the action. Shame is on the person. But if I ask you this question this morning, are you ashamed of your life? Should you be ashamed of your life? I bet you you're going through the catalog in your mind of the sins you've committed, wondering, thinking whether indeed you've lived a shameful life or not. Let me tell you the answer to that question. Should you be ashamed of who you are? The answer is equivocally no. If you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a child of the King. You are sinners, as I am a sinner, yet we are saved by grace. And there is nothing to be shameful for. 
Because one day, the Bible tells us, we will stand before the billions of those who are saved. We will declare that we are sinners. And in some cases, we will tell them about the sins we have done. We don't have to tell them because it is all cataloged in Scripture. The Bible tells us it is cataloged in the books of our lives, which all can read. And we will proudly say, we are sinners, yet we are saved by grace. We are redeemed people. You know, sometimes I want to put a big sign outside of our church. Maybe I will one day. There are no perfect people allowed here. You see, the common notion is that only perfect people, only the righteous, only the good people come to church. Let me tell you what. If you are perfect or you feel that you are perfect, you don't need to come. Perfect people are not allowed in church because the church is God's service department to restore his broken people. And that's why early on, one of the cultural premise we want in our church is that this church, GCCP, is a church for the spiritually broken. If you've messed up in your life, you are very much welcome here. Did you hear me correctly? If you've messed up in life, even as a believer, you are very welcome here in this church. And no one should cast judgmental eyes upon how you've lived your life because you answer only to God. Now, you should feel convicted if you are sinning. But that should not disqualify you from coming. Our glimpse of glory is that one day, the Bible says very clearly in verse 11, we will not feel shame knowing that we are redeemed people. The Bible does not say he will erase all of our sins from our minds. In that day, you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. I cannot tell you how many times I've, I've corrected the, the false notion that people think when we get to heaven, we, we, our minds will be wiped clean. No. We will know how sinful we are. We will know the sins we have done on this earth. But all the more powerful that for all eternity we will feel we do not deserve to be there, yet say by the grace of God that we are there as redeemed people and we will worship Him and thank Him for all eternity. That's why Jesus is portrayed as the Lamb that was slain. Can you imagine if we get to heaven and all of our memories are wiped clean? And we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, why do you have the nail scars? He says, well, I died for you because you were sinners. We won't understand that. We won't understand his grace because our minds would have wiped, been wiped clean. But that is not taught in the scriptures. The Bible tells us we will know of our sins. And we will look upon the one whom... Many have rejected, and many times we've rejected him as well. And we look upon him with eyes of love and of appreciation. For he died in our place so that we could experience all of glory. If you've truly confessed and asked God to forgive you of your sins, the Bible is clear. His shed blood covers your sins. God no longer condemns you for that sinful act. And you shouldn't let other people guilt you into thinking that somehow you're still a very bad person. That somehow your past indiscretions and sin somehow disqualifies you from serving the Lord.
Now listen very carefully. This truth is not a license to feel shameless in your sin. As we talked about a few weeks ago, being shameless to your sin is one of the attitudes that God punishes. But this is the opposite. This is the truth of the assurance that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we no longer need to feel ashamed, not to flaunt our sins, but to no longer allow guilt to override us and to stymie our desire to live for Him. It is with the attitude that says, I don't care what people say about me. I repented of my sins, and I'm a forgiven child of God. I want you to think how freeing and how wonderful that truth is. This is a glimpse of glory. That's why one of the hardest things to do is to admit your failure. One of the hardest things to do is to admit that we are sinners. If you know of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the most successful recovery programs for alcoholics, do you know what their step one is? Step one, and I believe their 10-step process, or 12-step process, step one, we admit we are powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. If you can't get past step one, in admitting that you and I are sinners, then you will always feel guilty and ashamed and you will ne never get over to step two. And that's why I hope you've never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but if you've ever been there, as portrayed in a movie, and it is true, they all gather in a circle and how do they begin their meetings? Hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. I wonder if any of us can stand before others and say, hi, my name is Stephen. And I'm a sinner, one of the worst. And yet, I'm not ashamed because I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm redeemed. I'm his child. I'm ashamed of my sin, but it has no hold over me anymore. There's a growing church I know in Texas where thousands attend. But when you go there, they're very transparent. They ask each other, what is your addiction? What are your problems? It's not that they are proud to have an addiction, to have a problem. It is the transparent recognition that they are all works in progress and that there is nothing to be ashamed of. I wish this was the spirit of our church. I know it is. Where we have the freedom to tell another brother or sister, this is what I'm struggling with. And that brother and sister in Christ tells you, can I pray for you? Can I journey with you? We need to change the shame-based culture of which we are a part. Because the Bible is very clear in Scripture, verse 11, there is no shame for those who are redeemed. If you've really messed up in life, there is hope. There's this glimpse of glory that there will come a time when we will no longer be ashamed because of the saving work of Jesus. Verse 12. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Verse 12. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. 
The third glimpse of glory given by the prophet Zephaniah is that, number three, the meek wins at the end. The meek wins at the end. This is a prophetic word that tells us in the end that only truly humble people are left to populate the new heavens and new earth, people who have demonstrated a dependence upon God. You see, it's so frustrating today that there are just simply many arrogant people, boastful people, who pride themselves in talking about themselves. Perhaps you're one of them, but for sure you know them. They really, truly believe they have achieved success by the work of their own hands. They do not give glory to God. They trust not in the name of the Lord. They trust in their own name, their own prestigious position. They trust in their own power. They are arrogant. They are boastful. Do you like people like that? I don't think so. And what's even more frustrating is that it doesn't seem like God is doing anything to humble them. But here is our glimpse of glory. As God has said many times throughout the scriptures, he humbles the proud. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. For what? For they shall inherit the earth. The future is not for those who are arrogant and proud. The Bible says the future is for those who are meek and humble, those who have trusted in God. You see, the only way for someone to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is if they have humbled themselves in recognition that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Unless a person who is boastful and prideful and arrogant gets to a point where they are meek of attitude and humble of heart, they will never recognize the need that they need a Savior. That is why it is very hard to witness to one who is very successful. And if you heard me say it many times, it is my prayer often for many of you that you will not achieve such great success that you will forget God. Because it's very easy. When you come to a moment of meekness in your attitude, when you realize you cannot save yourself, then you will look for the Savior. It is the meek of heart that accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. You see, we all want a part of our salvation. We all want to contribute a little bit of work to our own salvation because this is who we are. We're pretty good. But the Bible says, not by works, so that no man can, what? Can boast. Verse 12, I will leave in your midst. The people that will remain are the meek and humble people because they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Now, some of you have this notion that being a meek person has something to do with your temperament. The quiet ones are the meek ones. No, meekness has nothing to do with temperament. It is in the attitude. I like what A.W. Tozer once wrote. A.W. Tozer wrote this, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, 
he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But a meek man has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. And this is his motto, the motto of a weak, meek man. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. It is not a matter of temperament, my friends. It is a matter of attitude. Do you have a meek heart? Because the meek wins at the end. If I were to ask you to describe for me Moses, the Moses of the Old Testament, what would you tell me about him? What would you say? You would tell me that Moses was a great leader. He, he was a wonderful leader. I would ask you, tell me a little bit more. Or some of you may say, well, you know what? It seems like the Bible pictures him as a, as a hot-tempered man. He kind of lost his cool, and I'd say, you know what? I agree with you. Can you imagine leading a group of three or four million Israelites who love to complain and grumble? He must have had to be a great leader to put up with them. Forty-year wandering of the wilderness. And yes, I think it would be okay if he lost his temper a few times to deal with these group of people. If I were to ask you what one word would you use to describe him, you would have lots of words to describe Moses. But I'm sure the word you would not use is the word meek. And yet, very interestingly, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Numbers 12, verse 3, when God describes his servant Moses, you know how God describes Moses? Numbers 12, verse 3, Moses was very meek, more meek than all men that were on the face of the earth. Imagine that. For one word to describe Moses, God's description of him was that he was meek. The meekest person in the entire face of the world at his time. And you say, where do we see his meekness? We see his meekness not in his temperament, but in his attitude. In his acceptance of what God had ordained and planned for his life. Moses often readily accepted what God had planned for his life. He perhaps echoes the motto of A.W. Tozer, of a weak man, a meek man, in himself nothing, in God everything. Because Moses knows of his life. He killed a man. He killed an Egyptian. He was a murderer. He deserved not to be the great leader of God's chosen people. He was nobody. And God made him somebody. And therefore, he was meek of heart. When I look at the life of Moses, I think about his end, how he ended. And for me, that is a portrayal of meekness. You remember what happened to Moses? He led the people of Israel to the very border of the promised land. But God told him, you cannot go in. Now, if I was Moses, I'd argue with God. Why can't I go in? I led them all through the desert. I put up with their grumbling. And why can't I go in? And you know the story. God told Moses, you cannot enter 
the promised land because of one mistake you made. And you remember the story because of the grumbling of the people. He got frustrated. He got angry. He lost his cool just for a split second. And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. The result was the same. The water came out. The people were convicted of heart. But God said, because of that one incident, you cannot enter the promised land. You know, when I bring groups uh, to Israel, uh, we go to Jordan and we go up to the top of Mount Nebo. And from Mount Nebo, it is literally a stone's throw away from the promised land. Just crossing one river, the Jordan River, and you're in the promised land. And Moses never stepped foot. Whenever I go up there, sometimes I often get emotional. Because I identify with Moses. When I think about Moses so close, and yet he could not step his foot in. And did you notice in the scripture that Moses never complained to God? Moses did not say, Lord, you know, it's just not fair. That's what I would have done. It's just not fair. These insolent, knuckle-headed people caused me to make that one mistake. But you know my heart, God. I love you. Just let me step one foot in. And the Bible says that God told him, you will die on this mountain. You will see into the land, but you cannot step foot into it. And the meekness of Moses' heart shown through the bible tells us he did not complain he simply walked up the mountain and he died it is as aw tozer writes of a meek man the motto in himself nothing in god everything and these are the men and the women who will be at the end of this age So you know what, my friends? Let the arrogant boast all they want. Give them their 10 years of boasting. Let the prideful man or the prideful woman talk about the empires that they've created in their hands. Give them their 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But when compared to eternity, they will not be boasting. And let me tell you what. When they are in hell, they have nothing to boast about. And that is the stark reality of the truth of Scripture. And it is not that I want them to be in hell. You know what? When I came to an understanding of this truth, when I look upon men and women who are arrogant and boastful, I'm not angry at them anymore. My heart pities them. My heart goes out to them. But these men and these women will find it very difficult to say that they are nothing and that God is everything. And recognize the need for a Savior. So pray for those who are boastful and proud. Pray for those who are arrogant. That God will humble them. But our glimpse of glory, our assurance, our encouragement, our comfort. Is that the Bible tells us very clearly in verse 12. The meek wins at the end. And you know what for Moses, if you know the story well. Does Moses ever step foot into the promised land. Of course, he's in glory when God took him home. And the answer is yes. Because if you remember the story of the transfiguration, who appeared with Jesus, one of them was Moses. He stepped foot in the promised land. 
verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. The fourth glimpse of glory from the prophet Zephaniah is that at the end, there is peace and security in a cleansed heart. Peace and security in a cleansed condition of heart or peace and security in a cleansed heart. The Bible tells us in the future, the people of Israel will be different in their conduct as they once acted. They will no longer speak lies. They will do nothing wrong. They will be sinless. In fact, verse 13 pictures them as a flock of sheep grazing in peace, nothing disturbing them, nothing making them afraid. You see, when one has a cleansed heart, a pure heart, a forgiven heart, they don't need to be afraid. It is in a, with a cleansed heart that one finds peace and security. In the same way for us as believers who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we look forward to that time when we will no longer have a sin nature, when we will be glorified in our bodies, and then the sinlessness of our bodies, not capable of ever sinning again, we will find great rest and security. We will be at peace. You know, one of the questions I often get asked when I uh, speak about heaven is that people are scared. I said, why would you be scared when you go to heaven? It's a wonderful place. And a few questions I've received around the world with regards to this topic is, Pastor, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that after a billion years of living in heaven, I'm going to get bored one day. And there's going to be a Lucifer too. And there's going to be some angel who thinks highly of himself and says, I will be like the Most High. And you know what? I think I'll choose to follow him because I know myself. Have any of you ever thought about that? I think a lot of you have. And pastor, I'm scared that if there's a second rebellion, I'll be one of the leaders because I know my life. I'll be so bored of heaven that Lucifer too is going to make life sound really great. And I'll be cast out. I'll be made a demon. I'm like, my friend, you have not studied the scripture well. The Bible tells us we will be incapable of sinning. Our sin nature is no longer there. We have the freedom not to sin. We will not sin. There will be no second rebellion against God. Read the book of the Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Satan and his minions are cast into the lake of fire. There is no second rebellion. And even hypothetically, if there was one, you would not fall into it. Because in our glorified state, the Bible is very clear, you will not sin. You cannot sin. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. They can't. And speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. So, therefore, they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. No one will accuse them of sinning. There is peace and security. You know, I've met many people who cannot find peace. They look great on the outside, but they can't find peace and rest. They can't sleep at nights. 
Why? Because they have a hidden sin. They are scared that their sin will be discovered. They will be embarrassed if what they did in the past was somehow made known. I'm sure for all of us, if there could be a picture of our thought life, we would all be very embarrassed. If there was something you did in the past that was somehow made known, we're scared. It doesn't give us peace. But when the Bible tells us that one day we will live without sin, that is a picture of peace and security. You see, it is a terrible way to live life with a hidden sin. Sin, the Bible says, destroys us. It destroys us physically. It destroys us emotionally. It destroys us mentally and physically. If you ever get a chance uh, to read The Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, it's a literary classic. It describes very vividly what hidden sin does to someone. And if you've read the book, you know that there's a character, a pastor by the name of Dimsdale. And Dimsdale was a beloved pastor at a great congregation. But Dimsdale, they couldn't figure it out, the townsfolks couldn't, why he continued to deteriorate in his health. And the reason he was deteriorating in his health was because he hid the sin of adultery. And the one he had relationship with was made to wear a scarlet letter, a red letter A, pinned onto her blouse. But for Dimsdale, although this is fiction, as Hawthorne would write it, there was a scarlet letter A being burned into his skin. And here is the point. Sin was destroying his life. And you read the book, you understand the emotional trials and circus he went through. Only at the end of the book does he find peace when he finally confesses what he has done, but it is too late. He dies soon after because sin has so racked his life and destroyed it. Now imagine a condition where you don't ever have to worry that someone will accuse you of sin because you cannot sin. Or you don't have to worry about trying to cover up a sin because you will not do it. That is a glimpse of glory. We don't ever have to be afraid if we will be found out because we will not sin. My friends, if you're harboring sin in your life today, it is imperative, it is important for your sake to confess it before the Lord, to ask Him for His forgiveness so that you can experience peace and security. And so if anyone ever finds out what you did, you can say, yes, I did those things. But Jesus Christ has forgiven me. And he's redeemed me and I'm his child. And what I did in the past in no way disqualifies me from his unconditional love. And for men and women who are racked by the fear of being exposed by your sin, that is the truth that should bring you comfort. I know it's hard. We're not in the habit of telling each other our sins And we must use discretion if we were to do so because most of us would not be sympathetic. You know how most of us would act? Ooh, I know something bad about you now. And I can use it against you. That's how we often think. Very few of us are compassionate of heart. But it's okay. Because when we confess our sins before the Lord, 
He forgives us. To live in peace and security is such a wonderful glimpse of glory. Not a worry in the world because it is the end to our sin nature and this sinful world. I'm sure that when you opened the bulletin this morning and saw the title of our sermon, Glimpses of Glory, perhaps most of you thought that I would be talking about what heaven is like. This is how big your mansion will be. This is how the streets of gold will be paved. And those are all also glimpses of glory. But we often forget that apart from the place of our future home, what is just as important is the heart condition. What is just as important for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ is how He will restore us to a right relationship with Him in our glorified state. It is so wonderful to think that we who are sinful today will soon be sinless and that we will no longer experience the effects of this sinful world. So if I could go back and reuse the imagery of the ice cream samples I used at the beginning illustration. I want you to taste. I want you to feel. I want you to know. I want you to comprehend that one day God will completely restore this world to the Edenic condition of sinlessness. There will be no evil there. God will restore what man has messed up. Taste how good that is. And then the second wonderful thing I hope you have tasted is that the guilty are no longer ashamed. You can stand without shame as a redeemed child of God. The guilty are no longer ashamed. What a wonderful taste and feeling. Then I want you to taste that third flavor where the meek wins at the end. And instead of getting so angry at those who are boastful and arrogant, you pity them and you pray for them. Because at the end, the Bible tells us the meek will inherit the earth. Taste and see how good it is to know that the meek wins at the end. And then that fourth flavor introduced today. How wonderful it is to know that the taste that peace and security are yours for those with cleansed hearts. That sin cannot be thrown back at you to disqualify you, but to know with the assurance that once saved, always saved, that Jesus' blood covers your sins in the past, the present, and the future. And that he tells us, no one can snatch you out of my hands there's no more a beautiful picture of peace and security. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. To be given a glimpse of these wonderful truths of what our future has in store for us. We cannot but worship you and thank you enough. Thank you that in spite of my sin 
and disappointment for you that you still love me. You died in my place as you did for every person here this morning. And I pray, Lord, this morning that these glimpses of glory will challenge us, will challenge us to live a life for you in anticipation for your soon coming. But Lord, as that world one day will be fully restored, help us to begin that process of restoration today, to be transformed in our entire life, to be more Christ-like so that we can live in conformity with the world to come. Thank you for these wonderful truths that bring encouragement to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.